Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. tell all we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides here in the spooky season ready to bring you a little bit of october spook for halloween we love sharing our uh, more scandalous and exciting sides of history with you our wonderful listeners as always i'm becca i'm rebecca and together we are the rebecca's And uh, we have a perfect October episode for you today. This is traditionally sort of our fall spooky season. We like to do episodes that maybe get into a little bit of the spookier side of things. Uh, This is going to be a wonderful companion piece to our spiritualism episode, which we did a couple of years back now, which is hard to believe it's been a little bit of time. So if you didn't listen to our spiritualism episode, pause this, go listen to that, and then come back. But we are so glad you're here. A big, big, big thank you to our patrons. We love our patrons. They literally keep the lights on and keep this going. So we're so, so appreciative of you. And we love all of our listeners for coming out and enjoying a little bit of American history with us. And you know, we're not just, uh, we're not just voices in your ears. We're real live tour guides. This is a beautiful time of year to come take tours. We are having a really lovely autumn here in Washington. So if you're thinking about getting out, taking a tour, come join us. If you're a patron um, at a certain level, you do have opportunities to get discounted and free tours. So check out your patron benefits, but we'd love to see you on a tour. We are just in the time of year that I love being a tour guide. Yes. Because I don't get sweaty and it's nice. I know. It's the best. October is the best time of year to be really anywhere. October and I love November. Like we're just Mm -hmm. in the right, the right time to be in Washington weather. Good, good nuggets. I love it. I am so excited about today's episode because we're talking about somebody who I think is super well-known. It's a name that instantly people, I think, have some sort of connection to him and his life. But there's a lot about his background and about his non-public life that I think people don't know. So I think this is going to be a fun way to kind of dig in on a really well-known figure. So Rebecca, who are we talking about today? So we're going to talk about Harry Houdini. Yeah. Which is I thought, you might, I, I thought you might say his birth name and then everyone would be confused. Like who? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> twist, spoiler, he was not born Harry Houdini. No, he was not. Harry Houdini's a stage name. He was born Eric Weiss in Budapest in 1874. And he immigrates to he's the son of a rabbi, immigrates to the US when he's little, little. His dad comes over and then the family follows and they go to Appleton, Wisconsin. And he's a rabbi, and they're doing okay for a few years, but his dad 
doesn't speak great English or English with a strong accent. And so he's not doing as well as a he could, and so he gets fired by the congregation in um, Appleton, Wisconsin. And this is going to lead to a rough childhood. So when Eric or Harry Houdini is quite young, he's not even 10, his family's going to move to the city, Milwaukee, and then eventually New York City. And they're in poverty. He's going to go to work really around the time he's 10 years old to try to bring money in for the big family that he's got. He's going to watch his father struggle and slide into despair and they move eventually to a slum or what was then a slum in New York City and a cold water flat in the 1880s and it's just really really not great there's no real money or frankly time for him to go to school so he's going to go to work but does a bunch of things as a young kid, basically whatever he can to make money. He's a, a trapeze artist at first. And that's a lot for a little kid. That's a lot to witness, you know. He also is a runner, like he literally a champion cross country runner. And he's a, a professional magician, like long before his 20th birthday. While he's still like 15, 16, 17 years old, he is performing magic tricks. The trapeze thing isn't really magic, but it's still kind of fun. And he is card tricks and things like that. And he adopts right around this time as a a kid, essentially. uh, He adopts the name that he will be known by later on in life. Harry Houdini, the Houdini comes from, there is a uh, French magician magician magician. named Robert Houdini. Sorry, Dan. We'll go back a little bit. Harry (laughs) Houdini takes that name as sort of an homage to him. There's a bunch of stories about why he adopts Harry instead of Eric, which is his birth name. But it is thought his family called him Airy, which is a nickname for Eric. And that kind of sounds like, for playing charades, sounds like Harry. It is interesting to me that he changes his first name. Like the last name you can kind of see, Vice is a foreign name. It's also a Jewish sounding name. This is, you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism running around at that time. I can see the impetus for that. He wants to code himself more as American. That makes sense to me, but changing the the first name is interesting to me. Uh, Maybe Harry was thought to be more of an all-American name. I don't know. I think, too, there's something to be said about if you're a showman, the alliteration, Harry Houdini, right? You want something that rolls off the tongue. I think it's good to maybe note, too, kind of the era that we're in is there's a real boom in entertainment with this boom in the Industrial Revolution, more working Americans. People have a little pocket money, you have a little pocket change. This is a time in the U.S. where there's a big boom in carnivals. There's a big boom in sort of the traveling circus. Um, We're in that era. There's also vaudeville. There's performance opportunities people, we've got the rise of kind of this working class, middle class, where they've got some money to spend on things. So there is sort of this desire for entertainers. And uh, he is part of this wave of immigrants who see opportunities. This is a chance to make money. And uh, you do have to stylize yourself either to sound more American or to sound like the more appropriate kind of immigrant, right? Houdini, if it makes you think maybe a little bit of a French name, that's much more acceptable than sounding like you're Eric Weiss from Budapest, right? Um, if someone thinks you're vaguely, you know, French, that is exciting and exotic in the right way. But there are a lot of opportunities for performance. Um, I think it's hard sometimes to imagine today just how many little stages and shops and shows and carnivals and things that were packing up and traveling around and coming through. So if you've got a good gimmick, if you've got a good name and you're good at what you do, which he is, he's got the athleticism to really have some stage 
stage presence and have a physical element to what is essentially a magic show act initially. He's got something that's marketable. And a couple of things about his early life. Like at this time, people are starved for entertainment if you don't live in a city. If you're going to like vaudeville's confined to bigger cities because it's harder for vaudeville acts sort of move around. That's more of a traveling circus. You're also, you're not getting a like a burlesque act outside of a, a big city. That's not something that goes to small towns. And so what you're seeing are like traveling circuses. Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, all that. You're seeing animals moving around. You're seeing trapeze artists, uh, high wire acts, which is initially what he's going to do. And so he kind of, and there's a, a hierarchy to this. Like vaudeville's the big time in those days. So if you could get like a, a vaudeville contract, you were in a city, you were more a little bit more stable. That meant you had more, a little bit more money. So what he's doing initially is more like dime museums. He's doing traveling acts. He's going around. He's not making a lot of money at this. This is not a particularly like wealthy endeavor that he's involved in. And he also is going to spend a lot of time as a teenager really building up his body, doing a lot of, he swims, he runs, he's going to, you know, lift weights. He's going to exercise to make himself stronger. Uh, he realizes that that's the key, like his physicality is the key to success for him. And in this way, there's like a comparison to Teddy Roosevelt, you know, in this way, who Teddy Roosevelt at this time is, you know, not famous as famous as he's going to be. He's not president yet. But like there's a comparison there, like realizing the way to strengthen yourself is to go through building up your body and making sure that physically you can meet the demands of this. And that's what he spends a lot of time doing. So he develops his physique. Um, he's going to perform primarily at at first with his younger brother. His younger brother's nickname is Dash, which I love. Um, and they're the brothers Houdini, which is great. <laughs> it just is so catchy, the brothers Houdini. Yes. Uh, they shuffle cards. So they're going to do like sleight of hand card tricks. They read, so they're mind readers at the circus. They're going to go around together. They have this one in 1893. Now at this point, Harry Houdini is not even 20 years old. His brother's younger. They're going to have an act at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, which you've done a whole episode about. So shout out Chicago World's Fair 1893. Yay. It just always keeps connecting in. Always. It, there's World's Fairs are great because everybody, it connects to like so many different things. He does, this, they do this act called metamorphosis. Basically, Harry is trussed up and bound and tied in a sack, locked in a trunk, and the curtain conceals the dash, his brother's standing there. And the dash is going to bind up the trump with more rope. And they, a curtain briefly conceals them. And when it's withdrawn, dash is the one tied up inside the trunk, whereas Harry is standing next to the, him. Uh, and so it's the speed of this is what's going to really uh, inspire people. So it's a sleight of hand. It's a little bit of a, a glimpse. It's really cool. And so they, they travel around together. It's kind of their thing. In 1894, about a year or so later, Dash gets replaced in the trunk by a woman named Wilhelmina Beatrice Ronner, or Bess, as she was known. Her, she initially dates his brother, but her and Harry fall in love. And they get married after like three weeks. Like, they get married super fast. Um, and they... <laughs> 
It was a different time, right? It's the 1890s. He's like 21. It's great. And they work on stage. They have a partnership that's not just romantic, but also like they have a working relationship. She will join his act. And they kind of are on and off stage partners for 30 years. So they're, they do a lot of this really up until close to the end of his life. And he gets his big break in 1899. That's a lot of years, by the way, on starvation wages, particularly if you've got a wife and you're, you know, trying to make something of yourself. He gets noticed in Minneapolis for his handcuff act. So he was known as Harry Handcuff Houdini. And in fact, that is actually how he registers for the selective service as Harry With the Handcuff. Yes, as Harry Handcuff Houdini, which is amazing. <laughs> Minneapolis, it's kind of becomes this a big moment. A manager is going to notice this and sort of take him on. But then you can sort of see how various police departments and law enforcement agencies are like, we want to see you get out of these handcuffs. So it sort of becomes a bit of a challenge, right? Uh, to see if maybe your your city, your town, uh, even Scotland Yard at one point. Yes. Yeah. This manager picks him up, essentially spots him in Minneapolis and tells him that you need to con- you should concentrate on your escape acts. That's where the money is. Managing to escape from all of these intricate and cool places. And he is immediately a success. Like this manager makes good on him and really like he's put in the vaudeville circuit. He's performing at the top vaudeville houses in the country within months. They're arranged for him to do a European tour. Like he goes around, does this grand European tour. And this is all within a few months of sort of being discovered. So this happens pretty fast. He's on a European tour. He goes all over the place and people go wild for him. Like this is a new act. It's daring it's physical it's escapist people are fascinated well how does he continue to do this like what's happening here he goes to he like he gives a demonstration about how to escape from handcuffs from the scotland yard like which they don't really love but he gets basically in put in residence at a, a theater in london and so he will be stay there for six months And the the book's out so successfully at the Hombra Theater in London. Shows a big hit. His salary rises to like $300 a week, which is the equivalent of over $10,000 in today's money. So he's making a lot of money. He's making it really fast. He does very, very well for himself. Money does not seem to be the driver for him. He works long after he no longer needs to financially support himself. Like he makes a bunch of money and continues to work at the same furious pace. So money does not seem to be the driver for him he appears all over the place he stays in great britain for a while and he's then he'll go on tour and he's a showman by this time he's headlining he doesn't need the rest of the vaudeville act anymore he's the main draw he's the only draw he'll go to a town small towns big towns doesn't seem to matter he will go to the local police and ask them to restrain him and then freeze himself somehow And not just handcuffs. He asks them to come up with whatever restraints they can think of. Uh, None of this is pre-planned, right? It's strapped me away. And you can imagine, as he makes a name, everybody's trying to stump Houdini or trying to trap Houdini. So they're putting him into straps and straitjackets and all sorts of things. And every time he manages to escape. So it becomes so exciting. No one else is doing this. And no one else is doing it as well or as real as Houdini is. And I can't imagine like the excitement that must have caused in the towns and cities where he's doing these escapes. Oh my gosh. Must have been such a spectacle. 
he showed up and he's like the consummate PR man. Like he knows how to work it and he'll show up and I've never met any of these people before. They're going to try something and I'm going to try to get out of it. And it like, you can see how it kind of feeds on itself. Like the reputation for success just adds to it. Like everybody wants to be the area that stopped Houdini. So they're going to create more and more, more elaborate tests, restraints, things for him to do. The problem with this is though, of course, is you have to continue to one-up yourself. You have to continue to succeed at it. And he does. Amazingly, he just, he does this, continues to do this, gets better and better. He even, he escapes from the belly of a beached whale at one point. Like it's, which must have smelled super fragrant. Yeah. Uh, That's a no from me. Thank you. That's a big no. But then he graduates to being put in urns or submerged in water. It's really something. Straight jackets, milk cartons. He'll be put upside down in a clear glass box, essentially, filled with water upside down. So he's going in head first and he has to figure out how to do it. And he manages to escape in like under two minutes holding his breath the whole time because he's underwater. He gets out of all kinds of locks and things. And it just is the idea is people are watching this happen, watching him do this and still not sure how he does it. And that's something too they discover, he and his brother discover early on, is he used to just escape from handcuffs from behind a curtain and pop out and I'm free. And they realized that that wasn't as exciting, that if they got took away the curtains, people want to watch the struggle. And so this is something he learns fairly early in his act and he keeps for the rest of his career, is that part of the excitement and the danger and the lore is watching it happen. And is he going to get out? It's not as exciting if you just pop out free at the end. And I wanted to mention that Houdini really isn't precious about his techniques and about how he does this. And when it comes to sort of the brotherhood of performers and magicians, he is willing to share a lot of his tricks and tips. So this isn't something he's closely guarding. He's not worried about competition. And I think part of it is because of his charisma, his showmanship and his drive, this guy is going to work really hard. It doesn't matter how much money he already has, but he will write books meant for other magicians. He will attend. He's very involved in the world and industry of magicians. And he'll share while he's alive and while he's actively working a lot of the tricks of how he gets out of all these things. And I think that says something about him that he's not doing this simply just for ego or simply to be the best or the only one. I think he does it because he really enjoys it. And he does it because he just wants to work and to support his family and bring a little joy to people. So I just love that about him, that he's so willing to share how he's doing this with others in his field. If you could call it that, I don't know. (laughs) No one's quite in his field, but... Yeah, no, no one's quite in his league. Or in his league. No one's quite in his league. (laughs) So one of the things that's really interesting to me, he does this. I think he's so interested in sharing his knowledge and all of that because he knows that so much of his escape routes have to do with his physicality. So, so much of this is because he's stronger and better than everybody else. He will train with his wife how long he can hold his breath up to three minutes which try it it's you're not going to get that far like if you're lucky you can hold your breath for like 45 seconds do not try this at home that's like navy seals trained to do that right (laughs) right so 
it's hard and he's because he's stronger and one of the things he does and he's again he's pretty open about this he will get when he gets put in chains he'll expand his chest like taking a deep breath to expand the ropes and chains so that he's and then when he shrinks back down he's got a little more give and can escape that way so that takes a, an enormous amount of strength enormous amount of uh, self-possession and focus and concentration to do this and so i think that he shares his his techniques partly because he knows that they only work for him that's how much better he is at this than other people is that he can really do this and share his techniques because people can't match it he's also like we're in an age of spectacle people want something new and exciting we're at the dawn of all these different and new technologies we've got moving pictures are beginning you've got aviation you've got uh, advertising and radio and uh, newspapers are everywhere so you've got all this mass media flooding into people and he's going to not only take advantage of that but be really interested in it he is an incredibly versatile and very canny marketer he is absolutely a self-promoter. He's made for this self-promotion and vaudeville circuit of like showmanship. That's absolutely where he is. There's a lot, of, there's also a lot of ego here, right? This is the, the culture at the time, like mass culture is the culture of the aspirations of the normal man. And Harry Houdini is a normal man who aspires to greatness. And so in that way, he's gonna inspire and aspire other people to match this. You too can come from humble backgrounds and go on to do amazing death-defying escapes and stunts and things like that. The escape element of it's important too. You know, there's a lot of people want to escape something. And so he's sort of an avatar for a lot of the zeitgeist at the time, sort of escaping and uh, moving on to bigger and better things. There's that as well. Uh, but he is, he's just such a, he captures the zeitgeist, I think, in a, in a really real and important way that doesn't get talked about enough with Houdini. Like he really rides this wave of marketing, of public fascination, of um, new technology. Mass media. Ma yep, absolutely, mass media. And he's interested in new technology too. The other thing about Harry Houdini is he's not afraid to try new things. No, not at all. He writes books. He's in magazines. He has a short-lived Harry Houdini magazine. It doesn't last long, but he's willing to try it. He's an aviator for a brief moment. He gets fascinated by planes or flying machines in, the, in 1909, 1910. And he wants to go to Australia because no one's flown in Australia yet. And so he wants to be the first person to fly in Australia. And for a long time, it was thought that he was. But as it turns out, he wasn't. He missed by a couple of months. Some other guy had flown first. He does this and then immediately gives up the hobby and moves on to something else. So he like has <laughs> this really restless mind that just is constantly going into something new he is, adopts something has an enthusiasm and then moves on from it very quickly and so you can kind of see the how the public could be caught up with this and fascinated by this and i think um the thing that i find really interesting about houdini as he becomes you know, this massively famous figure, this person that around the world is this international superstar, is that he really starts to zero in on frauds, particularly within the world of spiritualism. So for those who did not listen 
to our spiritualist episode. As a just brief overview, spiritualism is a belief that there's this thin veil between the living and the dead and that the dead are not gone. They simply evolved beyond. And if we are open and receptive, they are communicating and sending messages to us. Spiritualism starts officially in the United States in 1848, and it gets a real boon during the Civil War. And, you know, you don't have to be like a historian to understand why. The Civil War is the bloodiest war in American history. People are devastated by loss. There is no grief counseling. There's no real support or understanding for the pain and tragedy of grief. And so people seek out opportunities to cope and deal. And for many people across the country, it's spiritualism. This um, this idea, right, that maybe I can still talk to my beloved lost one uh, one last time. So spiritualism gets a big boom during the Civil War. Uh, certainly the industry of it starts to expand, and it continues to remain quite popular through the 19th century into the early 20th century. And for Houdini, spiritualism to him is just in many ways an opportunity for con artists. And this is within spiritualism. There are certainly many people out there using this for their own gain to defraud the public. And Houdini will grow increasingly frustrated and angry at what he sees as a clear con operation of many spiritualists. And he takes it upon himself to sort of become the great debunker of these fake spiritualists and he will attend seances and spiritualist events often in disguise he'll usually bring with him a reporter and a police officer or law enforcement you know most of these spiritualists are using parlor tricks they're using tricks of the trade that any magician would know well and uh, as soon as Houdini recognizes that he starts um, kind of unmasking some of the better known spiritualists of the era and there's something I think here where Certainly, he doesn't like seeing anyone conned, but the idea of taking advantage of the bereaved, of taking advantage of people at their most vulnerable, he finds that very, very distasteful. He finds that very upsetting. This is a man, too, who I should mention was a massive mama's boy. Um, He was very, very close to his mother, beloved by his mother. And so when his mother dies... He's brokenhearted. He had called her my sweetheart. He had really loved her. So much of the work he did, I think, was one, to put her into a lifestyle that she could feel pampered and taken care of forever and to make good for the family. Uh, He did so much for her that when she dies, I mean, even he starts to wonder, could there be something to this? Could I communicate with my mother? And he agrees to actually go to a seance to connect with his dead mother. And this is going to just absolutely devastate him because the medium will write out this like five page long message from Houdini's mother. And at the top, this medium is going to put a cross. Now, if you listened at the beginning of the episode, um, Houdini's father was a rabbi. These were not, this was not a Christian family. So this little evidence, this little example of how these mediums and how these spiritualists could often prey on people at their weakest moment. That was really, I think, a defining moment for Houdini that, you know, he could immediately pick up on the fact that this was a fraud, but that for many, they were getting built. And so he mounts this just for really the the, the last 10, 15 years of his life, this campaign uh, to really stop at least the fraudulent practice of spiritualism. I think it's really 
kind of cool that he does this like in a crusader kind of way like his training in magic allows him to sort of do this a lot of scientists and academics don't understand the like magic behind this and whereas he has this background and he's gonna say hey no these people are this is all bunk and he goes around and he just publicly exposes all of these people who are defrauding which i love his relationship with his mother is also pretty interesting and becca kind of hinted at this but like he is a mama's boy one of the first big purchases he makes is a house in what's now harlem for him and his wife and his mom and he has this picture taken this formal photo of the three of them and it's called my two sweethearts there's it's weird he like writes her like whenever he's traveling around he'll write her letters which you know on the face of it okay fine he's writing his mom letters but some of these letters are like almost love letters like they're they had a they had a bond he in fact when he he's on tour when she passes away and when he's told he literally faints like he passes out like it's just that the grief of that it's just so hard for him uh and so he gets so upset that he wants to prevent people from taking advantage of people who feel the same kind of grief that he does. And you can see like spiritualism lends itself very well to people who are without morals and want to defraud people. And so he has this sort of crusader mentality, which I really kind of enjoy. And uh, he, he and his wife though, are not completely unconvinced that there is some communication after death. They actually set up like a, a code in case whichever one of them passes away first, we'll try to contact the other one. And so their code is Rosabelle Believe, which is apparently Rosabelle is their favorite song. And that's the idea is that whichever one of them dies first is gonna try to reach through and contact. It's like an insurance policy, you know, just in case just in we case. wanna be ready. And he, by this time in the 19 teens and 20s, He's not a young man anymore. He's in his 40s and he's still working at this really furious, almost insane pace. And he doesn't and physically need to. demanding, physically demanding pace. He doesn't need to, like yeah, like he's broken almost every bone in his body at one point. He gets scrapes and cuts. At one point his kidney ruptures due to the physical nature of this work. This is not easy. He's holding his breath for a long period of time, uh, testing out his lungs. This is also stressful, like knowing that everyone's coming for you, that everyone wants to be the guy that finally trapped uh, Harry Houdini. Also, you make one more wrong move here and you know, you're underwater for a long time. Like what's going to happen here? And so this is stressful. It's demanding. It's public. He's working at such a furious pace and it's taking its toll on him. And his wife wants him to stop or at least slow down. And you can see like the, you can imagine the conversations that they must've had at home. Like, honey, you got to slow down. Like you're going to kill yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. But, and he just can't do it. Like, it's almost a compulsion. And you can see, I feel like this is where the trauma of his, like, youth comes. That you can't be poor again. You have to provide for your family. You have to keep moving. have to keep working. Uh, and you can see the trauma of this early poverty. So also reflected in the immigrant experience. There's a lot of immigrants who really work hard to provide for their family after a rough start in the United States. So this is not unique to him. But he just, even long after he has the money to stop, he keeps going. It just, he can't stop. Uh, 
and I'll jump in here just to say too that he his fame is a bit of a double-edged sword he wants to he knows that it easy come easy go he knows that um, by the 1920s there's a lot of other competition for people's time and attention and money and he has gotten so ardently single almost mindedly focused on the spiritualism frauds that he is in the last months of his life testifying before Congress to essentially outlaw this practice of seances. It would have outlawed fortune telling. It would have criminalized hiring mediums to hold seances and trances, basically to outlaw any person pretending that they can unite you with the dead. He is very, very adamant about this. And he gets some flack from this. It gets a little bit of mockery in the newspaper but he figures if he keeps performing keeps keeping his, if he keeps his name out there he'll get the general public on his side and there'll be enough pressure on the government to outlaw this so it's sort of this thing too where he's got to keep working because he knows that he's got to stay famous because he's got these things he's really trying to accomplish and he's going to make sure that the government outlaws these con artists and outlaws this fraudulent pretending of connecting with the dead. And so it's so fascinating to me to imagine those last couple months where his wife is desperately trying to get him to stop working. He's working all the time. And then whenever he has a free moment, he's out before Congress begging them to take action on this issue. He's getting pushed back from it in the press. And it's just the cycle, the spiral that he gets into in these last few months. And it must have just been physically and mentally exhausting oh gosh i bet i just i bet and the experience of fame like going everywhere and just performing at this level and continuing to have to do oh my gosh it must have been hard so he dies in 1926 officially his cause of death is a burst appendix that leads to peritonitis sepsis and things but sort of befits Harry Houdini, there's some controversy around his death. So first of all, to lead up to this, he had broken his ankle at a previous show in Montreal at a theater resting before his show. And basically, it seems like he kind of gets teased by two students who are essentially trying to like prove that he's not as strong as he uh, says he is. And they end up punching him a bunch of times in the stomach basically to see how strong he is and he's sitting down resting his ankle so he's in a reclined position and they punch his stomach a bunch of times very hard and he basically starts wincing as they're punching him they stop punching him Houdini says that he's had enough and he didn't have it because he was sitting down he didn't have a good enough opportunity to brace himself he performs that night in a lot of pain he has unable to sleep and he's next couple of days, he's running a fever, but he refuses to stop performing. A couple of days later, he has a fever of over 102 and is diagnosed with acute appendicitis. He is advised to have surgery. He ignores the advice to have surgery and goes on with the show. He arrives in Detroit. He perf- what is his last performance. He has a high, high fever and takes the stage. Reportedly, he passed out during the show, is revised and continued. And at this point, he's so ill that he barely can move. And they basically move him to the hospital. And it's he's diagnosed with peritonitis. Now, it is not clear whether the relation, if there is a relationship between someone punching him and appendicitis. It is not like what kind of, what did the blunt trauma of the 
people punching him, what does that do? Does that affect his appendix? Does it burst his appendix? It's not really clear. No one really knows. But in any event, he dies of peritonitis on October 31st. So literally on Halloween, which is chef's kiss. It's perfect. And age 52. Now his insurance company, because of course he's insured because he's this big performer, has a lot of money on this. The insurance company concludes that the death is due to the dressing room incident where they were punching him in the stomach and pays double indemnity on his life insurance policy. So at the time it was decided that it was perhaps at least his death was uh, hastened at, at the very least by people punching him in the stomach. It's unclear and we'll never really know. But um, regardless of that, he does die on Halloween. He has a huge funeral, thousands of mourners in attendance in New York, and he's buried at a uh, cemetery, Jewish cemetery in Queens, where he actually remains buried. There was actually, he's got this massive tomb with an excedra, like the big sort of windy um, uh, stone carving. They actually added at one point after his death, uh, a bust of him, which is a rarity because Jewish cemeteries, uh, graven images are forbidden in Jewish cemeteries. Uh, But the bust is not there. In the 1970s, it was taken, it was vandalized and taken away. And that's kind of, he, there's a permanent bust there uh, at the, uh, was placed Placed there at the position uh, just a few years ago, so it is apparently a new one is back. Um, there is the American Soci- Society of American Magicians take responsibility for the upkeep, uh, as indeed they still do. Actually, uh, the organization that he founds, the Society of American Magicians, actually magicians te- keeps up the restoration of his tomb. His wife lives a few more years. She actually lives almost 20 more years, uh, dies of a heart attack in California in the 1940s. She is had wanted to be buried next to him, but is instead interred at a different cemetery. Her family is Catholic, and they refuse to allow her to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. So she's buried about 30 miles away in Westchester, New York. Um, and so they are not together. That makes me, that makes me sad. I know. That makes me sad, too. And, I mean, I don't think anyone listening to this, if you know Houdini, needs us to really touch on this, but I will. Just the massive cultural legacy, right? The pop culture afterlife of Houdini. You mentioned, um, of course, this code that he and his wife work out, the Rosabelle Code. She will hold seances for about 10 years after his death to see if, just in case the code. uh, And there is an incident where it seems as though the code is coming through. Uh, She then determines that it's likely that maybe they had cracked part of the code or figured out part of the code. And she she doesn't believe it's real. And uh, she'll say after 10 years that that's long enough to wait for a man uh, to contact you and sort of say, I'm done having these seances. But the Houdini seance continues today. If you go to the Magic Castle in Los Angeles, um, they perform the Houdini uh, seance every year, just in case. There are, of course, um, Houdini museums around the world. A lot of his collection is scattered. So his papers and documents are in the Library of Congress. And he was well published himself. Houdini wrote many books, many essays, many articles. Um, He was also a prodigious collector of books and essays and articles and magazines. He had a partnership with the writer H.P. Lovecraft. So um, there's actually a number of Lovecraft stories that are inspired by conversations and notes that Houdini created. There is a big collection of actual things Houdini used that he left to his brother. 
dash Theo, who he's going to go back to performing after Houdini's death. And Houdini's will said, when when my brother dies, all this stuff needs to be destroyed. But that is not exactly what happened. Uh, his brother was wise enough to know that these things probably needed to be displayed. And he actually sold a lot of it to a Houdini enthusiast. Things have sort of trickled uh, through various owners. Um, some of it's destroyed by a fire. But if you know anything about magic, you might be able to guess the one guy who owns a big bulk of what's left of Houdini's stuff, non-paper stuff. And that's David Copperfield. In Vegas, he actually has the largest portion of Houdini memorabilia, as it were. But there are plenty, plenty, plenty of Houdini-related things that you can find in museums all across the United States and all around the world, including a museum in Budapest. But if you go to LOC.gov, they've digitized a lot of Houdini's papers and documents and books. And so there's quite a lot of Houdini uh, information that you can find easily online at LOC.gov. So shout out to library. We love you forever. We do love you, Library Congress. They also have several originals, fo- photographs of him, as well as the only voice recordings of him that he, that, or at least authenticated voice recordings. He makes a couple of movies. He has a brief stab in Hollywood and it does not go well. Uh, his charisma doesn't seem to translate onto the silver screen, but he has rep- been represented in Hollywood a lot. He, there are many movies. One of, the, I think, the most famous is called Houdini. It's played by Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis himself was the son of Hungarian immigrants, so it kind of fits pretty well. There's a bunch of, there's more modern movies. Uh, there's like a TV movie in the 70s. Uh, there's a, um, basically, he's played by Harvey Keitel at one point, which is kind of a perfect casting, I think. Uh, but there's a lot of he's been very well represented on film uh, there's a Doctor Who episode like there or song there's a whole thing so he has been very well still and he's still famous like how many escape artists and vaudeville acts from the teens and 20s can you name Harry Houdini's like the one so he's still well known he's still like sort of the almost the godfather of magicians to this day. So Harry Houdini has a long cultural legacy. And I love the miniseries where Adrian Brody plays Harry Houdini. I don't know if it's out there streaming. I still don't think there's been one great film about Houdini and there probably could be one great prestige film about him. But the Brody um, miniseries does a really good job, I think, at digging into Houdini's drive, his relationship with his brother and mother and wife, these sort of bonds that were so, so important to him. And of course, that quest to debunk and demystify the world of spiritualism. So this was a great topic, Rebecca. Thank you for bringing it to us in the spooky season of October. And this Halloween, when you're out trick-or-treating or you're out taking a ghost tour, doing whatever you like to do on Halloween, take a moment to think of Harry Houdini. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. And we'll be back with you for November. Yes, thank you guys so much. We're so happy to always have you tuning in. Please reach out to us if you have questions or ideas for future topics. You can always email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. You can find us on the social media platforms as they exist. And we'll be at you next month with a new set of episodes. So we'll see you then. Thanks. All right. Bye.